Well, Christmas Day has come and gone, and here we are still preaching an Advent series. So, hello, La Mirada, are you ready for Christmas? I can't hear you. I said, are you ready for Christmas? Okay, I just thought we needed to get whipped up, even though the day has come and gone. So, um, we're either severely liturgically challenged and unable to comprehend a church calendar, or we're trying to make a point. And rest assured, it's the second. We are trying to make a point. In fact, It'll be three points because this is a traditional three-point sermon. Um, We have been learning all month from the Gospel of John, from the first few verses of it, and we've got one more week to see if we can possibly get all there is to get from the opening of John's Gospel. We want to get all there is to get from these amazing words here in John 1. And this week we've got just three verses, just these three. Look at chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. Out of his fullness... We have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Okay, wow, these three verses are an expansion of one little verse that we've already read up in verse 14, um, where John said that Jesus is full of grace and truth. John told us that the word became flesh, this is in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and then he called that incarnate word full of grace and truth. And now down here in verse 16, John is taking us back up into that phrase, full of grace and truth, to show us how much more is in there. He may have the feeling that we didn't get everything we should have or could have out of that little phrase, full of grace and truth. So the apostle takes us by the hand and leads us back and says, go back, there's more in there. You ever go through something too fast and miss out on most of it? A lot of us have that experience with Christmas perennially. You get everything going and the next thing you know, it's the day after Christmas and you wonder what happened. Or how about an extreme case? Have you ever thought that something was empty and then thrown it out only to realize that it had something valuable in it? You know what I mean, like an envelope with a check still in it. Uh, You just really can't be too careful when you're cleaning up around the Christmas tree. You've you've got to be careful. There could be gift cards in there, right? There there could be cash. I read an article recently about a guy in uh, Tampa Bay, Florida, who works for a trash company there, whose special job assignment, this isn't all he does, but he's the guy at this trash company whose job it is to deal with customers who have thrown away something so valuable, they are willing to go to the dump to get it. He keeps this map of which loads of trash every day get dumped where in the landfill, and he has the special rubber suits that you can rent to go trash diving in a desperate, after-the-last-minute effort to find something you went over too fast and threw out. He's even got a special procedure all mapped out for customers who call soon enough to intercept the trash truck while it's still on the street. Think about the desperation here. Um, If you make that call soon enough, you catch him in time, he will divert the truck from the landfill to a big concrete slab called the hot pad where the truck will dump out its entire contents and for the fee of $100 you can have the privilege of suiting up and digging for your lost treasures. It's amazing to see all the things that people have have been happy to pay $100 for the chance to dig through nasty, stinky garbage to get. He's seen people people pull out large amounts of cash that they had tossed, tickets to concerts, one time $50,000 in payroll checks. 
Uh, all kinds of legal and financial documents. False teeth, that was one of my favorites. <laughs> um, engagement rings, keys, keys to businesses, and my favorite, one time, an artificial leg. That was, I don't know how, I don't know how someone accidentally threw out their own or somebody else's artificial leg, but things happen. When you're in a hurry, you run by something, you don't register how much is in there, you don't, uh, you don't take notice of, you don't attend to what's there for you, and you dispose of it or just leave it in the past and move on. It's actually a great grace if you realize in time that you ought to go back for it. Well, we didn't throw anything out in our careful preaching through these verses, but John is still taking us by the hand and going back to that little phrase, full of grace and truth, and letting us know that there's more in there than we've heard, more than we're acting like, more than we can imagine. There's more in there is the kind of phrase that maybe Abraham Lincoln might have said when he was trying to call the nation's attention to the Declaration of Independence, which suggested that maybe all men were created equal, and maybe it meant that, and maybe there was more in there than we had seen for four score and seven years. Uh, there's more in there is the kind of thing that John actually has to say about Genesis, where he says, you guys, in the beginning, when God said stuff, what was that word with which he said stuff? Could we, could we go back and look at that? I think we might have skipped over all that's there in the beginning of the Bible. And that's why he starts his book with kind of an invitation to reboot the Bible and rethink how much was in there when in the beginning God said something. And he wants to talk with us about that word who was with God and was God by which God made everything. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, says Psalm 62. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. Sometimes we need to go back and listen more closely. To make sure that we don't go by too fast and miss it, John walks us back to the phrase, full of grace and truth, and he just meditates on that one word, full, from verse 14. So then here in verse 16, he takes up that word full and says, out of his fullness, we have all received. He was full, and out of his fullness, we have all received. And this is my first point, is that because Jesus is full, we can be filled. Because Jesus is full, we can be filled. John goes on to say what we've received. We received grace upon grace, or as the NIV has it, grace in the place of grace already given. And he's already said that Jesus is full of grace, grace and truth. But by drilling down just on the word fullness, John is inviting us to recognize that everything we need is found in Christ. Not whatever we happen to think we need, but everything we actually need. If we are hateful, dead, and in the dark, then the first part of the good news is that Jesus isn't. He is the one who has the fullness of God, the fullness of all that God is. And so in John's terms, that means the fullness of love, life, and light. Now, the fact that Jesus gives these to us when we don't deserve them is what the Bible calls grace. But the fact that he has them in the first place is something even greater than grace. It's glory. The fact that Jesus has the fullness of love and light and life is the glory that he has as the only begotten son. Out of his fullness, we have all received. So briefly here, uh, life, love, and light. Jesus has life. He is the living one. He has the fullness of life, and he got it from God the Father. In John 5, 26, Jesus says, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. Now, to have life in yourself is to be absolutely and utterly self-sufficient. God the Father is that, 
And so is God the Son. He has life in himself that he got from the Father. The Father and the Son and the Spirit have, in their unity, this life in themselves. This is the life of the one God, the Trinity. In John 6, Jesus says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me will live because of me. God, why does God live? Because God is the living God. Why do we live? Um, I'll say vicariously or parasitically or dependently. We live by feeding on the one who has life as he gives himself to us. Jesus has life in himself. We have life in him. We have borrowed life, dependent life. It's downstream. But you know the story told in this book of John. Jesus, the living one, is killed. He's murdered. But to put it that way, it makes it sound like a bad thing that happened to him one day. Um, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. There's this unthinkable livingness that the Son of God has. He's so alive that he can lay down his life and pick it back up again. He can set it to the side and say, I'm so alive that when I set my life down, I'll just go get it when I need it. You know, the normal way that the New Testament talks about the resurrection of Jesus is that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. That's, you know, nine times out of ten. Most of the times in the New Testament, that's what it says. But here Jesus actually says, I lay down my life. I take it up again. But lest you think he's like uh, got some independent business that has nothing to do with the father because he grew up and doesn't need his father anymore. He says, I received this charge from my father. All the time in John, this high claim of who Jesus is directly connected in the very next passage to his dependence on the father. Imagine having that much life that you can lay down life and take it up again. The life that Jesus lived among us was a human life. This life among us was a life that starts with a birth and ends with a death, just like every life you've ever heard about. But it wasn't just a human life, because it had more in it. It had life itself inside of it. The life of Jesus was not just another dash on the tombstone. You know the dash on the tombstone? Like you've got your name, here lies Fred Sanders, then you've got your open parentheses, a date, a dash, and then another date. You know that one? Um, if I get to design my own tombstone, I'm going to put a really long dash in there, right? Because um, I can do the thing where I can open parentheses, born 1968, but I don't know yet what's going to go on that second one before the close parentheses. My whole life's going to be in that dash. Um, but right now, like 2015 and counting, looking good to make it to 2016. So, um, The life Jesus lived was not just that. It was not just the dash on the tombstone. He opened the parentheses and he closed the parentheses, but when the parentheses closed on him, he kicked his way right through the closed parentheses and came out the other side alive again. How did he do it? Well, it's pretty mind-blowing that he rose from the dead never to die again, but it's even more mind-blowing that uh, he had already blown out the open parentheses too. So even though he was truly born among us and truly took up a human life, he existed before his birth of the Virgin Mary. He pre-existed, we would say. He was always, he was eternally the Son. There was never a time when the Son of God was not there with the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit. He was eternally alive as the eternal Son of God who came down from heaven, opened the parentheses of a human life, lived it, let the final parentheses of death close on him so he could be our Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then he took up his life again and kept living it. 
Because the Father has life in himself and gives the Son to have life in himself so that we can have life. God, the living God, is the fullness of life. And from his fullness, in the person of the Son, we have received. That's the life that he has in fullness. And then he has love. Um, you, you might already have picked up on the fact that I'm a little obsessed with how great the doctrine of the Trinity is. It's, it's really cool. Uh, and when people come to me sometimes and say, well, where could I read in the Bible about the Trinity? Uh, there are some places I could send you for the, the language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 20. You could look at the end of 2 Corinthians. But usually what I say is, oh, if you've got a little bit of time to spend, the best thing you can do to get the doctrine of the Trinity really in your mind and really settling into your convictions is to speed read the Gospel of John. I don't mean study it. I don't mean meditate on it. I don't mean ponder it deeply. I mean literally read it as fast as you can straight through and close the book and tell me your first impression. I mean, read it standing up if you have to, but you've got to move all the way through it. And when you close the book, you'll say, you know my impression of that book? Jesus will not shut up about his father. It's just nonstop. It's just like one big book about Jesus talking about how great his dad is. It's just uh, the spirit doesn't show up till about chapter 14, but then once he shows up, he's all over the place too. You sometimes get the impression in the gospel of John that they killed Jesus just to make him stop talking about his father, right? Every time he does something impressive, he goes, it's not me, it's the father. If they hate him, he says, you don't hate me, you hate the father. I love the father. Did I mention the father? He and I love each other. We're really, I mean, we are so tight. Um, Well, this is the love that the Father and the Son have for each other. And this is why John tells us in John 4, in in the letter of 1 John 4, that God is love. There's, There's a Trinitarian difference there. It's not that God is potentially love. It's not that God's sitting around in heaven saying, I just know I've got it into me, in me to be loving. If only there were someone to love. I know, I'll create something, then I can love it. No, no, no. Before you and I ever got here, before anything ever got here, Take a moment with me and think away the entire created universe. Okay, that was easy. Now, there's just God, and the one God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a life that is characterized by love. Interpersonal fellowship, the Father and the Son, and the unity of the Holy Spirit, love. And it's it's Father-Son language on purpose because it's that kind of family love. It's that kind of intimacy. The NIV says here in John 1.18, the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Closest relationship with the Father. Um, the NIV is kind of being nice to us there. The language is, uh, I think King James 1611 says, in the bosom of the Father, right? In the bosom of the Father. Um, uh, the word could also be translated lap. And I suppose if you're sitting down and you've got a baby on your lap, there's not a lot of difference or space between lap and bosom, right? Either way, it's me space right? It's, it's my personal private space. You can't get in there. Almost nobody in this audience is allowed to sit on my lap and be in my personal space there. Um, that's where Jesus is from. Jesus is from closest intimacy with the Father. He's, he's from the Father's own private, intimate, personal me space. That's why he can come and explain about the Father to us. No one else has ever seen God. It takes God to see God, And Jesus, the Son of God, comes to us from God and makes him known. And that's why, because he is the eternal Son of God, we are given power, if we believe in him, to become children of God. 
Well, that's love, and obviously much more could be said, but we've seen the life that Jesus is full of, the love that he's full of, and now there's the light that he's full of, and he's full of light because he is God, and God is light. First John tells us that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. There's nothing concealed or left obscure in God. He's not hiding anything from himself. He's not confused about his motives. He's not uh, wondering what depths and recesses there might be in his heart. He's not unsure whether he can trust himself. He has perfect clarity, perfect openness, perfect honesty. God is light. Is there any darkness in him at all? No, John says, pure light. And Jesus comes from the Father and says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in John 12, Jesus cries out and says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So there's light in God, and that light comes forth from God into the world. This is what John is talking us through the whole time. And when he says, we saw his glory, glory is of the only begotten, full, full of grace and truth. And when he drills down on full, he's thinking full with the fullness of God, with life and love and light. Jesus has them. We need them. We need God, and Jesus is God for us. From his fullness, we have all received. Can I just take a moment before I uh, move to my second point to apologize that this sermon is a lot of theology and not a lot of story? I mean, I'm only kind of apologizing because I have an excuse. My excuse is I'm preaching from the Gospel of John, which of course is a story. It's a ripping good yarn, as they say. But John has a strange characteristic of subtracting story and plugging in theology I don't know if you ever noticed this. Um, of course, we've just rehearsed the Christmas story at great length, but to do so, we've had to do that during this Advent season. Uh, even though we're preaching through John, we've had to swipe from Matthew and Luke all the time, right? As Jackson said, John is not a magi and mangers kind of a book. There's no birth of Jesus story. Where Matthew and Luke give you wonderful nativity scene stories, uh, John comes in and says, I got no time for that story. You already know it anyway from the other gospels. The word became flesh. Wow, thanks, John. That's no Christmas story, but that's some heavy theology there. But he does this all the time, all through his gospel. Check it out next time you read John's gospel. You know the story of the transfiguration? That's a great story. Like one time we were mountain climbing with Jesus, and he got to the top of this mountain and glowed with an incredibly bright light. Old Testament characters showed up, bathrobes and all, and Jesus changed his form, and, and we saw that. John, Peter, James, and John, John saw that. You'd think he'd tell the story, right? That just sounds like a gospel of John story. It's not in there. The Gospel of John instead subtracts that story and gives you the theology. He tells you Jesus said, I am the light. Well, I mean, I don't want to have to choose between story and theology. The theology helps me understand the story. But when John has to choose, he says, I'd rather say the word became flesh than tell you a Christmas story. I'd rather say Jesus said, I am the light and we beheld his glory than tell you about the time that he glowed on a mountaintop. Because you already know about the glowing on the mountaintop from Mark but you might miss the point of it. So I'm gonna give you the theology. There's really no story of Jesus instituting the Last Supper 
in John. They're in the upper room for like five chapters. They've got plenty of time to do the words of institution and and put the Lord's Supper in place. Instead, John has Jesus walking around the hills of Galilee saying, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no part of me. And his disciples say, that's kind of tacky. But but you've got this incredible theology about the Lord's Supper without the story of the institution of the Lord's Supper. There's also no story of the baptism of Jesus. Uh, Isn't that a great story where Jesus is there in the water The voice of God the Father from heaven says, this is my beloved son, and the spirit descends in the form of a dove so that the spirit is visible. And you look at it and say, Trinity, right? That's great. John doesn't give you that story. It's a great story. Instead, he writes a gospel with a constant theology of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, over and over and over. So, um, I like stories. I like theology. Uh, He might leave it out because we already know it, But it's also, John tells us his purpose statement. Why does he write his gospel? So that you may believe, right? And you have to believe in a truth claim. He's telling you something about who Jesus is. You could, of course, hear all the stories of Jesus' life and completely misunderstand what they mean or who he is. And so John comes in and says, I will make sure you don't miss the point. In fact, I will leave out the story and give you the point right in your face. When the disciples saw Jesus, they saw the truth about God. Now, this brings us to the second claim that John makes in 1.18. Nobody has seen God. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. It's a biblical teaching. It's right here in John 1.18. Nobody has seen God. It's also in Colossians 1.15, where Paul calls Jesus the image of the invisible God, And it's in 1 Timothy, twice. In chapter 1, Paul says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And then it's at the end of 1 Timothy, in chapter 6, he calls God the one who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, maybe if you were good at Sunday school, you're thinking, but aren't there some Old Testament people who saw God, right? So um, if, if I were teaching uh, brave young people, they might slip up a hand and say, doesn't Isaiah say in chapter six, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, the train of his garment filled the temple? Yes, Isaiah says that. And if John 1.18 is true, then it can't mean that Isaiah saw God. It has to mean that he had a visionary experience, that God gave him a vision of the Lord sitting on the throne. Um, John comes along, the New Testament comes along, and explains and makes explicit and clear and pointed the fact that no one can see God or has seen God. Now, Isaiah is very bold. He tends to talk this way. He speaks very directly, I saw the Lord. I I don't know the Hebrew there. I don't know Hebrew. But all the translations say exactly that. So I think, oh, I'll bet in Hebrew it says, I saw the Lord. Um, But think about the way another prophet says it. Uh, There's this other prophet, Ezekiel, who, if possible, is even weirder than Isaiah. He has this vision also of the Lord on a throne, except it's Ezekiel, so the throne has wheels and animals and stuff like that. It's just, and it's in Babylon, which is, I don't know why it's over there. It's very strange. And when he describes the whole thing, he takes a whole chapter telling you what he saw very carefully, and then he says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. 
right? That's Ezekiel. Ezekiel, what'd you see? Did you see God? Well, I saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Okay, well, Isaiah says he saw the Lord. Well, you're gonna have to talk to Isaiah. What I saw was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God in a vision by the river. Okay, Ezekiel, I like that. I actually think Ezekiel's giving you relevant detail about the question, did anyone see God? We could just go straight to the theology here in John 1.18 and over in um, 1 Timothy 6 and say, no one has seen God or can, right? But Ezekiel really helps me with this sort of modesty and carefulness. Like, God showed me a vision by the river. Man, was it ever the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Now, so I think, to my mind, that deals with the prophets pretty well. Um, Amos actually, I think, sees God standing on a wall measuring it with a plumb bob. And I think, well, that's interesting. Was he wearing overalls? This is a very strange vision. You know, it's not this theophanic sort of amazing appearance. But now again, if you're good at Sunday school, you might be thinking, what about Moses? Moses saw God, right? Well, let's go there. Uh, Exodus 33, Moses said, this is after a moment of intercession for Israel. Moses says, please show me your glory. And then in Exodus 33, 19, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take away my hand and you'll see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now this is Moses' visual encounter with the Lord where he asks to see God's glory and God specifically tells him, you can't handle my glory. Um, now, Now this is Moses This is in many ways the high point of the Old Testament where if anyone were gonna have direct access to God, it would be Moses. In fact, there's kind of a rule in the Bible that you're not supposed to talk bad about Moses at all for lots of reasons, but the most practical reason is you will get leprosy if you do, right? Do do you know this story in Numbers 12? Um, Aaron and Miriam get kind of cocky and they say, uh, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Then it says, and the Lord heard it. <laughs> Uh-oh. This is definitely a, like a parenting moment. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aram and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold... Miriam was leprous like snow, and Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. Yikes, it's terrible. How was Miriam healed? Uh, Moses interceded for her, and Miriam was healed. So the moral of the story is, don't talk bad about Moses, right? This is like a Bible rule. You probably won't actually get leprosy for bad-mouthing Moses, but you will deserve leprosy. 
So the question here in John 1.18 is, is John getting perilously close to talking bad about Moses? Look at our passage, John 1.16 through 18. He's unpacking, we beheld his glory full of grace and truth, and he unpacks it by bringing in Moses for contrast, right? Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Why would John call in Moses here as a witness or as a foil or as a contrast to what he wants to say about Jesus? Well, it is not to say Moses bad, Jesus good. It's not even to say Moses weak, Jesus strong. It's not even to say Moses failed, Jesus win. I mean, that would be crazy. You don't want to get leprosy, right? John calls in Moses to say, Moses started it, Jesus finishes it. Moses prepared the way, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. God spoke through Moses. Moses is the high watermark of verbal revelation from God in the Old Covenant. God spoke through Moses, but Jesus is the word God spoke. It's really parallel to Hebrews 1 that starts, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets in lots of ways, many times, many ways, many portions, but in these last days he spoke through a son. Moses, I would say, is on team Jesus, and you could even put it the other way, Jesus is on team Moses. He never accepts the invitation to talk bad about Moses. When the Pharisees say, we don't know where you're from, we follow Moses, Jesus doesn't say, Moses, Moses, he's old and busted, I'm the new hotness, I'm, I'm Moses 2-0. No, he says, oh, Moses, your fans, huh? Well, if you listened to Moses, you'd listen to me. Moses was talking about me. Now, how was Moses talking about Jesus? Just a little past our Moses story in Exodus 34, this happens. The Lord descends in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Did you catch that last part? Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This should sound familiar. It sounds kind of like full of grace and truth because it's the same thing. And this pair, steadfast love and righteousness, which can also be uh, rendered in the New Testament, grace and truth, this is all over the Old Testament. The Old Testament loves to recite the perfections of God, but it especially likes to pair steadfast love uh, or grace with truth or faithfulness. Right? It, it loves to put those together, steadfast love and faithfulness, grace and truth. So Psalm 25.10 says, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 57 promises, God will send forth his steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 89 praises God and says his loving, uh, that loving kindness and truth go before his face. In Psalm 108, thy grace is above the heavens, thy truth is above the earth. And as I was looking around, and those are just my favorite four or five places, I was looking at, at dozens of occurrences of these two together and wondering which ones to read out loud to you. I thought, well, let me try to make this hard on myself. Could I find it in the shortest chapter in the Old Testament? So I went to Psalm 117, and there it is. You want, want to hear Psalm 117? It's super short. It's not Psalm 119. It's 117. It says this. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. 
That's the whole psalm. There's almost nothing there. It's like praise the Lord twice. um, But then in between, the psalmist has to say, don't forget the steadfast love and faithfulness. Like this is the thing about him. So what God started through Moses, Jesus finished. That's why we have to revisit the opening words in the beginning. That's why this is all one book. The reason you can get this in a nice leather-bound edition is because these things really go together. The New Testament and the Old Testament, or as my friend Joe Henderson calls it, most of the Bible. Um, It's not that this is the part we ought to throw away. If you were to throw this away, you would end up calling my friend in Tampa Bay and going to the hot pad to try to find this. Like, oh no, I threw out Isaiah. I totally need that. Um, This is all one big two-part book. And that might be why John tells us it's grace on grace, that we've received grace in place of the grace already given is how the NIV puts it. It could be uh, grace upon grace could be New Testament upon Old Testament so that you get the full story of Jesus uh, and of all God's ways so that when Jesus shows up, he is full of grace and truth. He is full of the grace and truth that we've learned to identify with the character and identity and fullness of God all through the Old Testament. And that brings us to the final point from this passage, and it's the main point that um, this closing of our Advent series is about. It's that Jesus explains God. I'm not talking about in any one particular sermon where he says, hey, buddy, gather around me, I'll explain God. This, this idea that Jesus explains God is a comprehensive idea in the Gospel of John. It's what he means by Jesus is the Word, right? He's the Word. If God tells you stuff about himself, God is telling you about himself by the Son telling you about the Father. This is why the Son won't be quiet about the Father all through the Gospel of John. Jesus is explaining God. We have all kinds of ideas about what God is like. Um, And in general, the ideas that we just come up with about what God is like are pretty predictable. They're things that we sort of generate out of our own felt needs or project out of our own wish fulfillment. They're things that we wish were true about God or are scared are true about God. Uh, Half the time we're overly optimistic about what God probably thinks about us. Half the time we're overly pessimistic about what God thinks about us. Why? Because that's our attitude towards ourself And when we just start making up ways to explain God, that's what we're doing. We need the grace of God's word telling us, shut up with all that. That's that's not what God is like. You know what God is like? God is like Jesus. Jesus explains God to us. And, And God needs explaining. It's pretty presumptuous to think that you could just sit around and come up with ideas about God that were true. God's pretty complex and interesting. He needs to tell you about himself. We need the word to say, listen to this. This is the truth about God. That other stuff is stuff you're making up and projecting. He's like this. In fact, you know, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We generally take that to mean God loved the world so much. And certainly God did love the world so much that he gave his only son. But that little word so actually means like this. Um, God loved the world so, you know, this way, thus. Thus, God loved the world. In this way, God loved the world. In what way did God love the world? He loved loved the world this way, that he gave his only son. That's how he does it. That's Jesus explaining God in the very act of giving himself for our sins, right? Or being given by the Father for our sins. Because we need fellowship with a God who is pure light and in whom is no darkness at all. But we are not 
light in whom there is no darkness. And so we need Jesus to explain the cost of bringing us into fellowship with God. God loves the world like this. When Susan and I lived in Berkeley, um, we, we collected f- funny bumper stickers that are prominent in that region of the country. Uh, I don't mean we collected them like taking them off the car. We just made mental notes about them. And we also collected bizarre and unwarranted things that people said about the divine being. Because it's not just plain old clean atheism in Berkeley. It's weirder than that. Um, you know, it, it, it's easy to make fun of Berkeley, but it's like atheism plus granola or atheism plus pantheism or, or whatever it is. Um, one time I was in a great bookstore looking at some books, and I heard from the next aisle over someone saying, oh, there it is, goody, goody, I've been looking for it everywhere, and the universe wanted me to find this book today. Well, I was busy shopping for books, or I would have gone over and given a free theology lecture. Um, it wouldn't have even been theology. I, I wanted to go explain to this woman what the universe really thought about her. <laughs> like, like, mainly the universe serenely disdains to contemplate you at all, ma'am. And for this, you should be thankful, for the universe is quite hostile to people like you. By which I mean life forms. Uh, so, so this idea that the universe wants something for me. This is kind of a story explaining God or, or whatever, whatever God-like thing she could imagine. Um, Susan once overheard a woman in a, in a gym, a pregnant woman, say, oh, this is my first child. I'm pretty scared about it. But then I just tell myself, you know, evolution has been preparing my body for millions of years to deliver this baby. Well, again, you know, you try to be polite in good company and get along with your neighbors in Berkeley. But I was thinking, I could draw you charts and diagrams about the plans evolution has for you giving birth to that baby with a giant cranium. Like this is not, this is a, it's a very strange evolutionary explanation. And besides which, it's a weird way to think about your relationship to reality and that which is. None of this explains God. Now it's easy to make fun of Berkeley. Um, it's actually a blast. Catch me after the service and we could tell Berkeley jokes for a while. Um, but this stuff's all over the place. And there are Christian versions of it. So just as we could look elsewhere to have ultimate reality interpreted to us, believers in Jesus are also susceptible to this. Um, We can be tempted to take the course of our lives as an explanation of God's character. We can look at the way our lives go and say, this shows me who God is. The ups and downs of my life, this this is who God is. I see all kinds of things happen. If I pay close attention to the ups and downs, Maybe I could say who God is. Well, and that's a twisted version of of something that's true. We can look at the course of our lives and say, if I already know God's character, I am able to discern in the strange course of my life what he is up to. But where can I come to already know God's character? Um, Well, it's here. We can see in Jesus the character of God. When, in the course of your life, you can't see God's hand, you can still trust his heart. But that presupposes that you know his heart to compare it to the course of your life. God acts in history in accordance with his revealed character. He acts in world history and in your personal history in accordance with his character. How much accordance? Well, it must not be total, or at least it must not be conspicuous, or else we wouldn't speak of the role of faith in perceiving the invisible ways of God with us those ways would then be visible, and we could just read God's identity right off the surface of history. God's presence in our lives must be not the presence of self-evident, visible, tangible presence, but enough for faith. Your life is not the explanation. Your life actually is what needs explanation, 
right? Woe be to you if you are reading and coming to know the character of God from the ups and downs of what goes on in your life. So we say, as the old hymn teaches us, God moves in a mysterious way. And you think about the mysterious way that God moves in the course of people's lives. Think about Joseph uh, from the end of the book of Genesis. Imagine if Joseph read the events of his own life as the primary text that made God known to him. Who is God according to the course of Joseph's life? He seems to be a God of slavery, betrayal, fratricide, dislocation, exile, false accusation, imprisonment, long years of apparent neglect, and so on. But as bad as Joseph's situation was at times, he was never in that terrible, terrible situation of having to guess at God's identity and character from the mere facts of his life. He knew the truth of the character and faithfulness of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That God moved in very mysterious ways in Joseph's life, and Joseph could read God's ways in his life because he brought that wisdom with him from the covenant, uh, from the God of his fathers, from the sure word that God had spoken to Abraham. Uh, the English hymn writer William Cooper, who wrote that hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, uh, gestured toward this cosmic and impersonal way that God rumbles around behind the scenes of our lives. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storms. But then Cooper went on to give advice about how to read God's ways in our lives. He said, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. God is his own interpreter is a great way to say it. It's a great way to say what John says here in the fullness of Revelation, that the only begotten one, he has made God known. This is where God is known, and this is the solid foundation from which we can go out into the mundane details of our life and understand and recognize and trace the ways of God because we know that he's been made known in Jesus who comes from the Father to bring from the fullness of God and make it available to us. Well, we have gone from the Trinity to the mundane mundane details of our lives and that's where we're ending the Advent season and starting into the new year. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your sure and certain word in your son Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that you have made yourself known. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have made the Father known by bringing uh, the fullness of who God is to dwell among us for us and for our salvation. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.